Good morning. Good morning. It's nice to see you here. There are many passages in Scripture that we don't hear a lot of people preaching on. Song of Solomon, way too sexy. When was the last time you heard someone preach through the book of Numbers? Numbering the tribes and their marching orders and who they camp next to many different ways. Some shy away from the book of Daniel and Revelation because they have some bizarre and somewhat scary prophecies that people don't want to touch. Leviticus. We hear little snippets from Leviticus, but we seldom hear a sermon going all the way through. If you offer an animal from the flock as a fellowship offering to the Lord, you are offering a male or a female without defect. And if you offer a lamb, and it goes on. First Chronicles, the first 10 chapters, they're full of genealogies of the people returning from the exile, names I can't pronounce and are referred to no place else in Scripture. We don't hear a lot of that preaching. Lamentations, it's filled with humiliation, suffering, and despair of Jerusalem after the Babylonian conquest. So today, we're going to look at another one of these passages that don't get talked on very much. They don't preach about it. It's often referred to as the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, a.k.a. the unforgivable sin. Why? Because it's there. It's part of God's Word, and we're committed to expositional preaching. We don't skip over stuff because it's uncomfortable We don't skip over stuff because it's difficult. So, buckle up. Here we go. Let's look starting in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So, as we're looking at this, first take, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is a grievous and serious thing. We also saw from this passage that Satan is strong, intent, and relentless. 
but I have a spoiler alert for you. Christ wins. He conquers. Let's look at what he has for us today. In verse 22, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem and were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. We've talked a lot in the last few months about Pharisees, a little bit on Sadducees. We haven't talked too much about the scribes, so it's worth some time to talk about who these scribes were. They're not the same as Pharisees. The scribes were there, they drafted legal documents, marriage, land sales, things like that. Every town had a scribe. But that's not where you found most of the scribes. Most of the scribes were located in Jerusalem. Why were they located in Jerusalem? They were the scripture writers. So although the scribes were the paralegals of the day, most of what they did was copy over scripture. Copy over scripture? Why? Well, you have a document of Scripture. It gets old, it gets faded, it gets torn. They don't just send it up into the cloud. They didn't have a cloud. Well, they had clouds, but not like we're talking about. They didn't have thumb drives. They didn't even have Xerox machines. Some of you here don't know what I'm talking about when I say Xerox machines. They didn't have any of that. How they preserved documents was they copied them over, and they copied them over, and they copied them over so that they would always have a supply of relatively new documents as the old ones started to fade and deteriorate. This is what the scribes did. But they weren't just human photocopy machines. They were the ones who knew the scriptures, along with the Pharisees, and their job was to interpret the scriptures. Now the Pharisees, they were kind of excited about themselves because they actually were writing scriptures. Not writing scriptures as we would say it, but they had this book called the Talmud. And that would say, okay, <coughs> excuse me. For instance, it's illegal to to, uh, I'm sure glad someone put these up here. Thank you. <clears throat> you should honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. No work should be done on the Sabbath. Well, what does that mean? Well, what if we put together a list of things that that meant so that we would know whether we were working or not? And so they would write this list. So, for instance, it's not a lot, you're not allowed to farm on the Sabbath, that would certainly be work. So if you drag your table across your wood, or your wood, your dirt floor, you are turning up dirt, well that's plowing. So you can't do that on the Sabbath. They made this whole list of what they considered scriptures. That's what the, the Pharisees did. The Sadducees knew the scriptures and they would interpret them for the people. Why do they need to interpret them for the people? Couldn't the people just pull out their Bible and read? No, they couldn't. The 
the masses were semi-literate. The boys went to Hebrew school, and the best and the brightest, after a little bit of time, would get promoted. The rest of them would go back to working their trades or with their family. That best and brightest would get a little bit more schooling. The best of those would go on. The rest of those would go back. So eventually, you had this group of rabbis who had had some schooling, very literate. But the rest had kind of stopped their education earlier. And for women and girls, no Hebrew school, or not the way we were talking about that. So most of the people had very limited ability to read. And if they could read, it's not like they had the scriptures in their home. It was very expensive. Only the wealthiest of the wealthy would be able to afford to have scriptures in their house. So they didn't have access to that. The scriptures were written in Hebrew, or most of them. There was a little bit in Daniel and um, Ezekiel that were written in Aramaic, but they were written in Hebrew. And most of the people understood Hebrew. In fact, they all understood a little bit of Hebrew. But the day-to-day language that people spoke at that time was Aramaic. Why are they speaking Aramaic? They were speaking Hebrew up until the Babylonian captivity. The Babylons came in, took away all the people who were educated or rulers, brought them into Babylon, and had them work for them. And they learned how to be the professional people in Aramaic. Aramaic became the language that people used. They came back from Babylon, and that's what people were were speaking. Yes, people still learned Hebrew, but they needed someone to read the scriptures to them. It was kind of like um, England before Wycliffe, or Germany before Martin Luther. The clerics, the religious leaders, the priests, they had the scriptures in Latin, and only very little bits would be um, allowed to the people. People wouldn't read until they were translated, and now we have Bibles that we all have in our homes, and hopefully we read. That wasn't the case at this time. So you had these scribes who were instrumental in the lives of the people reading and interpreting the scriptures to them. They were the keepers and knowers of Scripture. So, back in our text, the scribes came down from Jerusalem. Came down. Well, I don't have a map for you today. I, I know many of you like my maps. But we're going to do it without a map. The center of Judea was Jerusalem. And where Jesus was preaching was above in Galilee at this particular time. Well, when we say, we look at a map and we go north, we say, oh, that's going up. Wouldn't they be going up? Well, the reason they say going down is because Jerusalem is on a small mountain, 2,500 feet. If you go camping in the the San Gabriel Mountains, you're probably camping about that level. We here are a lot lower, maybe 500. The Sea of Galilee was 700 feet up. So they came down from Jerusalem 
to Galilee. Well, why did they come down? Why would they be coming down? Well, Jesus was preaching, and they were feeling a little threatened, so they wanted to see what was going on. They, the scribes, knew Scripture. They knew the law. They knew prophecy. But we have seen that Jesus was doing something different. They knew the prophecy, and they would have seen, oh, some of these things Jesus is doing kind of reminds me of that. They knew the law. They knew history. So we have a lot of scriptures we're going to get through today. But the good news is I'm going to whip through the, these first ones in Mark pretty quick because I want us to do a little review as to what the scribes would have heard about. We're not going to go through all of the Gospels. We're not even going to go through all of Mark. We're just going to go through the first few chapters of Mark that we've seen so far, okay? So they would have seen Jesus going to John, that popular preacher in the wilderness. Jesus was baptized. There was a voice, a voice from God, and a spirit descending like a dove. Well, that's different. Didn't see that every day. Jesus started preaching about the time of God is being fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe. He cast out an unclean spirit in 121. He teaches with authority, and we see his fame spreading. Simon's mother was healed. In 32 to 34, he, there's a many healings that happen. He's starting to get popular for that. People are coming to him, asking to him to heal people. He's preaching and casting out demons. In 140, he heals a leper. That never happens. The paralytic story that we heard about, where he was lowered through the roof, he healed him, but before he healed him, he forgave his sins. Well, that's going to get the attention of the scribes, isn't it? Only God can heal. Only God can forgive sins. God is being glorified, which takes the focus off of the incumbent leaders, like the scribes. He eats with sinners, and he rebuts the scribes. He explains, interprets the fasting and the Sabbath. Hey, wait a second. That's the scribe's job. You're interpreting. That's my job. He's getting their attention. He heals a withered hand and explains the Sabbath in chapter 3. And then we see the Pharisees aligning with the Herodians. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, as Elder Eliot explained a little while ago, the Herodians were the secular opponents of the Pharisees. They didn't get along for anything. But they did for this, because Jesus was causing discomfort among both of those, those groups, and they sought to destroy him. That's just two and a half chapters in Mark. So we see... The place of the scribes was threatened. They were the law holders, the scripture interpreters. We see that Jesus starts fulfilling prophecy, and that would have caught their attention. 
we see in Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Just as our brother Sam read to us earlier today. If this is the Messiah, then our position as scribes is going to be changed. And, oh yeah, we're going to be called to account. Ezekiel thirty-three twenty, O house of Israel, I will judge each of you according to his ways. It's enough to take one to take stock of what we're doing, what we're saying, what we're thinking, what we're preaching. Isaiah 16, 15. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Wow. If I'm a scribe, I'm looking at these miracles, these preachings, and then I remember that I'm going to be judged if I don't do this right. Something got in me getting a little afraid. Does that make sense? So what's the scribe's response? They repent and fall on their faces to worship Jesus? No. They decide to discredit him so that hopefully he will his following will fall away and he'll just kind of fade. How do they do this? They put him in league with Beelzebul. Well, who is Beelzebul? Well, Beelzebul is a Philistine deity. Who are the Philistines? That sounds kind of familiar. Remember when Moses was chosen by God to lead Israel out of Egypt? And then before he went into the promised land, he handed the reins over to Joshua. Joshua took the people in and they conquered the land. They were told to conquer the land and cast out all the peoples because God didn't want them to be polluted by the peoples and be distracted, be pulled away from worshiping him. Well, people, the Israelites kind of did that. They got rid of most of the people. There were a couple places up north we heard about uh, last week. Down in the south, in Judea, there's a group called the Philistines. They were kind of a coastal people, and they were allowed to stay there. And they became a thorn in the side of the Jewish people for as long as they were there. You may recall a guy named Samson. His wife Delilah turned him over to the Philistines. She was a Philistine herself. Remember that story of David and Goliath? That big, tall, giant of a man? Goliath was a Philistine. There are many more instances of that. The Philistines were a enemy in the backyard of the Jewish people. So what better way to discredit this Jesus guy than to accuse him of being in league with the deity of our backyard enemies, Beelzebul. 
they're saying Jesus is lying. He is not the Son of God, Son of Man. He's not sent by God. He's in league with Satan. He's not God. His miracles are because he is in league with the evil one, so that he has power over Satan's demons who dwell in sinful men. No, they were not denying his miracles, just the source of his power. Verse 23, And he, meaning Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, he called them to him. You know, when I was growing up, there was a little saying we had that sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. The idea behind that is, yes, someone physically hurts you, that's, that's a big deal. But you know, if they're just talking about you, just let it wash over you. That's not a big deal. It's not worth getting riled up over. Well, this is a case where the scribes were impugning God's character. And that cannot stand. That's not something you just kind of let go. Jesus certainly didn't. So what did he do? Come here. Come on. I don't know about you. Jesus does that to me. I, I, I don't know. Okay. And they came. They came to him and he talked to them. What did he say to them? Verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man then indeed he may plunder his house. Well, Satan isn't stupid. He was created by God. He was an angel. He was fallen. So I guess in that way he's kind of stupid. But his power, working against himself, will cause his own downfall. He's not going to do that. Now, again, we know that Satan's downfall does come, but not in this way, with him working against himself. Jesus compares Satan to a strong man. And Satan is indeed powerful. And he is dangerous. We recall from 1 Peter 5, 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. There are no lions in Israel now, but at that time, there were wild lions there. Can you imagine? Let's go outside the house to play, but first let's check to see if there's any big cats there. You watch a lion take down some animal, tear it apart, you're going to be careful. This is the picture that would have gotten the attention. That's what Peter is comparing Satan to. Satan is powerful and dangerous. Satan needs to be bound. 
We look at Revelations 20, verse 2. And he, meaning Christ, sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. This is Christ's work. The point of the story is that Satan is not going to undercut himself by casting out his own demons. He will, by the way, be defeated. He is strong and dangerous, and he won't defeat himself by undermining himself. But he will be bound, defeated, and overpowered, and restrained by Christ. So, let's examine our methods. How do we interact? Are we being like the scribes who say, you know, if you want to go traveling on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to. But if you want to go visit some of your property, you can. So I'm going to set a fork on the ground on, on the day before, 100 yards away from my home, and then a spoon 300 yards away, and then maybe a napkin 500 yards away. And so when I want to go visit somebody, I just, on the Sabbath, I just go along, I'm visiting my stuff. We're making, or they are making lists of ways to get around the law, of check marks, legalism. We don't want to be like the scribes. On the other hand, we want to have discipline. I like to get close to God by having some time alone with Him in the morning. Now, I could check, I did it today. Check, I did it tomorrow. Check the next day. I'm worshiping the check marks. It's a fine line between developing a discipline and having the discipline be my motivation. We have to be careful because we don't want to become like the scribes. We want to draw closer to God. Don't be on the wrong side of that. Pastor Davis spoke about that just a little while ago, and we see it popping up again. Verse 28. Here we're getting to the good part. Well, not the only good part, but maybe the difficult part. 28 through 30. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of men and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. He starts off, truly I say to you. Other places, he says, truly, truly. He's saying, pay attention. This is important. He has some good news, and he has some bad news for us. Good news. Sins, blasphemies are forgiven. Let's talk about sin. In, John, in 1 John 3, verses 4 through 5, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. 
So we have a definition of sin. Sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion against God and against His law. But we have some good news. Let's talk about blasphemies. Blasphemy is speaking evil against God, showing contempt or lack of reverence for God, His doctrine, and His Scripture. We see in Psalm 78, 18, Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and a foolish people reviles, or blasphemes, your name. There is forgiveness in our rebellion, our sin, our blasphemies, dishonoring God by His payment for our transgressions. Christ's death paid for us. We, see, we recall in Galatians 1.4 where Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. That's the good news. And that is good news indeed. Here's the bad news. While there is forgiveness for our rebellion, our sin, and blasphemies, there is one sin that is not forgiven. Eternal unforgiveness. Yikes, that gets my attention. I better not do this one. So what is it? Well, it's probably not lying or stealing. Maybe murder? No, because it says here it's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the Holy Spirit? Well, we know the Holy Spirit is part of the Trinity. Let's look at some of the things that the Holy Spirit does to get ourselves centered around this a little bit better. So, we see in John 14 that the Holy Spirit teaches and reminds us, reminds us of Christ's teaching. 1 Corinthians 3, He indwells and fills the believers. 1 Corinthians 2.10, He's a source of revelation, of wisdom, and of power. The Gospel of John, chapter 16, He guides us to all truth. 1 Corinthians 12, he gives believers spiritual gifts. Ephesians 1, he seals, he seals the believers. We're marked. Back in the old days when people still sent letters, if you were a person of importance and you wanted a document to go to somebody and know it was not tampered with, you put it in an envelope dripped hot wax on it, and you had a personal seal that you impressed into the wax. The wax dried, so you would know that if the letter got to the person and the wax had not been broken, that the letter had not been opened and read or, or messed with. Well, I could just take that wax off, put some new wax on it, and put another seal. No, because I have my own seal and no one else has access to it. The seal makes sure that what's in there, in the envelope, does not 
get diluted, tampered with, pulled out. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. Moving on, Romans 8. The Holy Spirit intercedes for Christians. Again, Romans 8. He renews and sanctifies Christians. And then the one I want to talk about, John 16, 7 through 11. He convicts the world of sin. That seems to be focusing on more of what this passage in Mark is talking about. John 16, 7 through 11. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I, Jesus, go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So we're, here we have Jesus, Last Supper. This is what one of the things that he tells his disciples, kind of part of his last message to them. And he talks about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Sin, because of lack of belief. Righteousness, because of the destination of the righteous one, who is Christ. And judgment, the ruler of this world, and we know that Satan, is judged. You see how this is kind of tying in? That the Holy Spirit, one of his functions is to convict and illuminate about sin. So let's step back a little bit. Why did Jesus say this about the, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Verse 30. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They said he had an unclean spirit, casting out demons by the power of Satan. This is a perfect example of blasphemy, attributing to Satan and his demons works of God. What a disrespect to God, the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, saying the evil one is is doing these things that, he's, that, the, that God is actually empowering. Jesus had been doing all these miracles that we talked about, fulfilling all this property, prophecy, preaching God's word and preaching it correctly as opposed to the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes were feeling threatened, so they decided they wanted to discredit Jesus. They were clearly blaspheming, which as we just learned is a sin. Do we see that, how that kind of all fits together, this flow of logic that Jesus gives us? So now, back to the main point. What is this unforgivable sin? Well, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And more important, have I done it? 
because I don't want to be in that camp. Well, it's a specific sin, not just a general state of unbelief. Why? Because unbelief can be forgiven when we respond to the call of the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.8 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that, Jesus, that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is the exact opposite of what the scribes were saying. Do you see that? So, what is this specific sin that is committed at a specific time? It's not responding to, rejecting, that known calling of the Holy Spirit to salvation. Specifically, it is digging in against the pulling of the Holy Spirit, calling you to salvation through belief in Christ and acceptance of His work. It's not just, oh, I was enlightened, I heard about Christ and that He paid for my sins, uh, I'm not ready. No, it's not rejecting that. It's when God says, come to me and we dig our heels in. An example of this might be Exodus chapters 7 through 10. Let's read all those chapters now. No, we're not going to read those now. Because you're familiar with the story. Moses was told by God, bring my people out of Egypt. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. Moses says, God, will I do? And God said, okay, you're going to send a plague. So God sends a plague. Pharaoh says, okay, you can, the people can go. The plague gets lifted. Pharaoh changes his mind. Moses says, let the people go. Pharaoh says, no, another plague. Okay, they can go. Plague gets lifted. Never mind. They can't go. This repeats over and over again. Pharaoh had his heart hardened. God was prompting him, and he dug his heels in. When God calls, we need to respond. The context of this chapter in Mark, the scribes, and the Pharisees, by the way, were entrusted with God's word. But they added, they reinterpreted, they subtracted by enforcing the Talmud, the traditions, and legalistic explanations. Their job was to shepherd the people, to keep them pointed to God. Their action was to resist that calling and turn away from God in favor of their false rules and turn the people away from pointing to God. So... Let's think of this in our time. We have elders in this church. And these elders are called to shepherd the congregation. The congregation, as a group or individually, can resist that shepherding. But the elders are called to shepherd nonetheless. And woe be it to any elder, any shepherd, who leads his sheep off a cliff. Let's get personal. Are we worried 
worried about this sin, if you're worried about committing the unforgivable sin, then you haven't committed it. If you're not a Christian, God can call you to Him and you can accept that. You can come to Him. If you are a Christian, you've already responded to that call. So what is the concern? Those who have not come to know Christ, they're going to dig in their heels. Psalm 51.17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do we have contrite hearts? Are we broken before Him? Are we listening to Him? If we do, then praise God, we're open to Him and we're not committing this sin. However, do not sleep on God's calling because if you are being called by God and you resist, then you could commit this sin. Do not resist his pull. 2 Corinthians 6.2 says, by, the, by Paul writing, For he, God, says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, 170 people are going to die in L.A. County. And none of them knew that this was the day they were going to die. You don't know your day or your time. Be responsive. You want that contrite heart. You don't want to be just sitting here listening and learning. You want your heart changed. You don't want to be in the pew just soaking up the songs, soaking up the teaching, because soaking it up in the pew saves no one. Unfortunately, that's a common thought. Church attendance gives me merit for salvation. Sounds like the scribes and the Pharisees, doesn't it? Right? Attendance is obedience. We learn, we worship, but this is not salvation. What about a Christian? Can I commit this sin? After all, we see in Matthew 24, 24, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So the elect are capable of being deceived? What about that? Not deceived with respect to following and knowing God in a salvific way. I respond to the Holy Spirit call, but I'm not perfect. I still sin. Am I possibly committing this sin? Sanctification is a church word for God making us more and more like Him, which He does to people who He has called to His own, who are saved in Him. Those who are in the process of salvation will have the fruits of the Spirit in their life. 
Let's review those in Galatians. 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. If you have these things in your life, not if you were loving to your wife, if you were good to your husband once, twice, but if you see that as part of the character that God is changing in you day by day, week by week, that's the Holy Spirit working in you in sanctification. Evidence of your following the Holy Spirit's call is an increase in these fruits in your life. Another way, fruit of your witness. As God works in you, you want to tell others. You preach, you teach, you share, you come alongside, you maybe pray with somebody. Maybe you're the one who plants the seed. Maybe you're the one who waters it. You, you till the ground. Maybe you're the one who cultivates it, who actually gets to pray with the person to receive Christ. If you're working along those lines and people are coming to know Christ, that tells us where you are and how you know you're in Christ. Yes, the elect may be capable of being deceived, but not to the point of the unforgivable sin. We referred to the Holy Spirit sealing. Remember that envelope with the wax seal on it? That's a ceiling of the believers of belief in Ephesians 1.13. This is an aspect of the assurance of salvation. Another is John 10.29. Jesus is speaking. My Father, who has given them, the believers, he has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you're in Christ, He is not going to let anyone snatch you out of the Father's hand. So you were, are not committing this sin. So, in conclusion, these scribes are trying to explain away the works of Christ. Do we see that now? Of course we do. Every day. I don't watch much news because that's all it is. It's people being contrary to Christ. The scribes did it. Blasphemers did it. We see people around us doing it. We don't want to be the ones doing that. Christ's character, God's holiness cannot be disparaged. Christ didn't just let this go. He said, hey, scribes, come over here. Let me tell you something. He didn't just let God's character be blasphemed. Satan is seeking to deceive, and he's powerful. So what do we do? Well, one, we witness to those that God brings to you. The time is short. It is shorter than we think. Number two, if you are one of the elect, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. That's good news. Three, consider carefully any lists, interpretations, 
traditions, practices, or any other idols that could distract you from worshiping God in truth. And four, if you don't know him, perhaps the most important one of all, if you don't know Christ, now is the time to accept him. We don't typically do altar calls here because we don't want people to make a confession of faith based on some emotion that's stirred up, the music's playing, the choir's singing, and come on down, and they don't really know what they're doing. But I also know that in a group this size, there may be some, there are probably some that don't know Christ. Again, when I was growing up, we had a, a saying that says, you're preaching to the choir. And what that meant is the choir's there every week listening to the sermon. They know everything. You need to preach to the congregation. But let me tell you, as someone who's been in choirs, people come to choir for all kinds of reasons. Just because you're in the choir, just because you're in the pews, doesn't mean you know God. So I want to urge you today to consider, is God calling you? Now, I did not clear this with anybody here. So, um, Carl, could you raise your hand? Everybody see Carl? Dennis, raise your hand. If you're a guy and God's calling you, find one of these guys. If they don't have time to explain to you how to come to know Christ, they can bring you to somebody who does. Okay? Um, Yuri, can you raise your hand? Yuri's not going to raise her hand. Lorraine, raise your hand. If you're a woman and God's calling you, find one of these people, one of these women, and they can bring you to the, someone who can help you. Thank you, guys. I know I'm surprised you're here. Usually I try to uh, let you know if I'm going to call you out, but I didn't. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a grievous and serious thing. Satan is strong. He's intent and relentless. But Christ conquers and rescues us from Satan, from the sins we commit. These sins that condemn us. Respond to him today. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, thank you for bringing us through this difficult passage. Help it not be just an exercise in trying to interpret something that I know I'm insufficient for, but that you would guide each of us, those who don't know you, bring us to you. Those who do, strengthen us, help us to examine our, our ways, keep us from idolatries, from scribe-like behavior. Guide us today, today and even use the time this afternoon, as we hear about the miracles you're doing in Spain, as we hear about how we can minister to one another, even in the, in the meal downstairs. We thank you for your power, for your love, and for your insight. In your name we pray.